vacation, uh, summertime is a time of vacation, and uh, <clears throat> so it's uh, time for me to take a vacation too. And uh, <clears throat> I'm going to be leaving, Carol and I will be leaving uh, tomorrow morning early and gone for the next three Sundays, so I wanted to let you know that, that I didn't get raptured um, <laughs> when I'm not here. And uh, <clears throat> But anyway... Uh, terrible, huh? Yeah. But anyway, uh, Pastor Vince has got uh, really, he's got a loaded gun for, uh, for you folks these next three weeks. I had asked him to uh, preach on a particular topic that is uh, close to both our hearts, something he has done a lot of study and thinking on, and uh, you don't want to miss the next three weeks. So plan your vacations around that, and uh, don't miss these next three weeks because it's really going to be something special for you and I think we'll, uh, we'll deepen your understanding and appreciation of the New Testament. Uh, it could be significant for you. So uh, that's a good build-up. Don't screw it up. But uh, yeah, <laughs> you're going to be on vacation too, right? <laughs> so no, you, won't, you want to be here for this for sure. You really do. Well, let me, uh, let me just begin with a riddle. Can I do that? Let me uh, put your thinking caps on here. Let me ask you a riddle. I am one of your most prized possessions this morning. You receive a new supply of me every day, yet you never have enough of me. You can save me or invest me. You can spend me or lose me. And once I am gone, you can never get me back again. Time. Time. Perhaps one of our most prized possessions. Certainly living in hectic Southern California, right? There never seems to be enough time. But I, um, I like to read biographies, and I like to read biographies of... Um, of the church, those that have gone before us in the faith. And one thing that I have noted as I read these biographies, and this uh, sort of sits like somebody on my shoulder, and that is that the most productive and the most unproductive people in the world all have the same allotment of time. Isn't that fascinating? Everybody gets the same amount, and yet some people use it in a way that is incredibly productive. And for others, it seems to be like a fistful of jello. They squeeze hard and open their hand, and there's nothing left. What we do with the gift of time makes a huge difference, a real difference in this world. We are finishing this morning this section of ecclesiology, the study of the church. And we have been focusing for many weeks now on the issue of church leadership. When I get back from vacation, what I want to do with you is to turn to the book of Revelation and spend some time there looking at uh, the seven churches in the early, book, the early chapters of the book of Revelation and to ask and try to answer the question, and that is, what does Jesus value in a church? What does Jesus value in a church? So when I get back, we will work through those seven uh, churches together where Jesus very specifically tells us what is important to him with regard to a church. Once we have done that, we will have finished with our six-month study on that ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. And from there, our plans are to go into the book of Romans. But I want to just finish this section on church leadership with you this morning by focusing on the tremendous sacrifice that leaders within the church are called upon to make. The tremendous sacrifice that leaders within the church of Jesus Christ are called upon to make and how should the congregation relate to its leadership. Open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians 5, we're going to look at verses 12 and 13 this morning as, as well as uh, two other verses. But we will be focusing a good amount of our time here in 1 Thess 5, verses 
12 and 13. If you are using that Pew Bible, that's page 1184 in that Pew Bible for you. Let me just take a moment here to set a background for this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote here to the church at Thessalonica. This, is, this church was established by the Apostle Paul on his, one of his missionary journeys here at Thessalonica. It's recorded for us over in Acts chapter 17. If we were to, uh, to go there, well, we will not, but uh, where it talks about the establishment of this church. We do know from that chapter in Acts 17 that there was tremendous hostility to the Apostle Paul in his church planting endeavor here in Thessalonica. So much hostility, in fact, that he was driven out of the city rather quickly. And so he was not able to, to stay long among them, although a fledgling church was established there. And there was tremendous, as they say, hostility against, this, against the message of Jesus Christ. And so the Apostle Paul was very concerned that this infant church might get snuffed out, that it might not be able to stand firm in the face of the persecution. And so after just a few months, he sent back an emissary, Timothy, to check on the status of the church. And he sent Timothy there, and Timothy checked up on that church. First Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 give us a little biographical information about that. And after Timothy went, got there and he, and he found that the church actually was doing very well, it was, it was not just surviving, it was thriving in the midst of the persecution, Timothy rejoined the apostolic uh, church planting group in Corinth and, and reported on the state of the church. And from Corinth, Paul wrote this letter to the church at Thessalonica. Now, The text that we're looking at here is chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. Let me just read it for you. It's it's into the close of his letter to them here. He says, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. Now, we don't know for sure, we can't say that that when he says those who diligently labor among you are are elders for sure. We don't know that. There is certainly historical precedent for that. Acts chapter 14, verse 23, after his first missionary journey, the Apostle Paul circled back around to the churches he had founded, and they did appoint elders in those churches. And so it's perhaps a, a good supposition that he's talking here about the elders. And he's talking about the relationship between the elders and the congregation of the church here at Thessalonica. So whether they are for sure elders or not, it, it really doesn't take away the fact that the instruction that is given here is applicable today to you and to, uh, and to me within this church and the relationship that we have to those who are in leadership among us. Paul is addressing himself in this couple of verses here to the whole issue of the relationship of the body to its leadership. The relationship between the body and its leadership. And so as we look at this text this morning, and we will look at a couple of others as well, there are three vital lessons that we can learn regarding church leadership so that we will understand how to honor God in this area of our ministry. Our desire, beloved, is to submit ourselves to the Word of God in every aspect of our lives. We want to do church, if I can say it that way, the way Christ would have us do church, because after all, it's not our church, but whose church? It is Christ's church. It is God's church. Okay? So there are some lessons we can draw here from this text. First lesson that I want to to draw out of this in verse 12 is that God requires rigorous effort. The first lesson is is that God requires rigorous effort. He speaks first in this text to the leaders, to the elders and deacons. And then He will speak to the congregation at large. And so first we have here a statement, an admonition to the leadership of the church itself. And and it says here, uh, He talks about those who diligently labor among you. You see it? Verse 12. God requires rigorous effort. Kapiao is the, is the Greek verb that is used here. The cognate noun is kapos, and it means strenuous toil. 
strenuous toil to the point of exhaustion. It is a word that springs from the, from the, the trades, from the building trades, from the, from the life of a manual worker, one who earns his bread from the sweat of his brow. A man who works hard all day long. It is that kind of effort, that kind of strenuous effort that the Apostle Paul refers to here when he talks about, we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you. Those who work among you to the point of exhaustion. Rigorous effort. Rigorous effort. This, by the way, is a very favorite term the Apostle Paul uses when he is referring to the ministry. There's, you know, sort of a joke that goes around, right? That, you know, you'd like to have my job. I only work an hour a week. And so it looks like a pretty good job. But the point of the matter is that to be involved in the leadership of the church is a very rigorous job. It is a rigorous job. And it is a rigorous job not just for those who have, by the, by the, um, by the generosity of the congregation, been allowed to do this on a full-time basis. It is a rigorous job for those who do it on a, on a uh, volunteer basis as well. So it is a very strenuous thing to be involved in the leadership of the church. Let me, um, let me turn you uh, to the left here a little bit. I'll just take you to one other, in the interest of time here, I'll take you to one other section, Colossians chapter 1. One of the 14 times that uh, the Apostle Paul uses this, this word kapiao to, to refer to the work of the ministry. Colossians chapter 1, verses 28-29. Paul there, writing to the church at Colossae, he says, We proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. Now, if you want a job description, that is a huge job description, right? That we are admonishing every man, teaching every man, that we might present every man complete in Christ. The Apostle Paul says his life is given to the maturity of the saints, to the bringing about of the maturity of the saints. Is it an easy task, Paul? Verse 29 And for this purpose, I also labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Is it an easy task? No, it's a task for which I must strive according to the power of God. It is a strenuous task. It is a task that requires rigorous effort to bring the body of Christ to maturity. Turning back to first Thess now. And notice... Again, in verse 12, that he says, he diligently, Paul's talking about those who diligently labor among you. Do you see that? He's talking about the strenuous effort that is spent in the, within the congregation. The, the, the leaders are involved with the people of the congregation. They are weary in the service of the local church. That's the idea. They are weary in the service of this local church. Beloved, Spiritual leadership is a hard and stressful work. It is a very difficult job to do. Caring for the welfare of God's flock is emotionally draining at times. There are times when you are so tired that you can hardly keep your eyes open. It is emotionally draining. It is time-consuming. It, it is something that is with you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You never close your toolbox and go home. It is always there. It is always pressing in upon you. The problems of people you carry with you. If you care not for them and are able to just block them out, tune them out, then you are not suited, you are not fitted for the position of spiritual leadership within the church. So to sign up for leadership is to sign up to carry the burdens of a congregation. It is draining. It is also frequently lonely. It can be a very lonely position. Pastoral burnout is a real issue. Years ago when I first started at this, leaving corporate banking to come into this occupation... Part of what I did was to, to, to get some disability insurance. 
And so I got an insurance company to write me a disability policy, and they wrote me a very good one. And later on, I came to realize uh, just how good a policy they wrote me when they stopped writing it for other people. They don't write these policies anymore like they wrote for me 12 years ago because what they came to realize is that so many pastors were burning out and cashing in on them that they no longer write that kind of a policy. Pastoral burnout is huge. The turnover within the ministry, we are so fortunate within this congregation to have longevity within leadership. The average turnover now is around three years where it is constantly a revolving door in and out and in and out. And part of the reason for that is just that it's lonely. It is an emotionally draining position. It can be a discouraging job as well. It is a discouraging job because you cannot reach inside of someone. You know what is wrong. You know what needs to change. You would love to stick your hand right inside and rearrange their life, but you cannot do it. So all you do is you can bring the Word of God to bear, you can pray for them, and you have to hope and trust upon the Spirit of God to make real and meaningful change. Leadership within the church of Jesus Christ means that you are constantly aware of and involved in broken lives. And you see the effect of sin upon people. You get to see up close and personal just how much damage can be self-inflicted through sin. It can be wearing. Broken relationships, devastated families, gross behaviors, destructive thought patterns. All of this is what it means to diligently labor among the church. It's not an eight to five job. It is not a two to three hour a month board meeting kind of position. It is a life's calling. It requires great sacrifice. And it requires men who are willing and have the energy to make that kind of sacrifice. Whether they are appreciated or not, the sacrifice still has to be made. The burnout is high. And why in the world would any man give himself to such a task? Why would you sign up for that kind of a task? There's only one answer. The answer is the call of God. It is the call of God. It is a spiritual thing that happens when God puts it upon a man's heart. First Timothy three, chapter chapter or first Timothy chapter three, verse one, right? If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a supernatural work of God called the call of God upon a man's life that would cause him to sign up for this task. Paul says it is a rigorous effort that has to be exhibited diligently labor among you now what kind of rigorous labor is he talking about the answer is right here again in verse 12 let your eyes go back there it's outlined for us in in a couple of participles he talks about having charge over you and giving you instruction that is the definition of what it means to rigorously labor among them to 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 uh, to give oneself to the task of ministry to be diligent in one's labor is to have, is to have charge over and it is to give instruction these are the twin components of eldering eldering involves teaching eldering involves leading administering this is the diligent labor that has to be done first leading Right? Those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord. Prohiste me in the Greek, we've used this word over and over again for you. And we'll re- reinforce it again this morning. It means to stand before. It means to stand before. Those who have charge over you, those who stand before you in the Lord. Those who stand before you. This is Paul's favorite term for spiritual leadership. To stand before. It is a man standing before his family. It is a man standing before the congregation in leadership. To be in a protective position. To be in a leadership position. It is also a word of relationship. It, ta- it, it involves the idea of care and provision. He even used in referring to the idea of a father with his own children. For example, over in 
chapter 2 of this very letter, verse 11. Paul talks there, he says, uh, reminding the Thessalonians, he says, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. That's the, ni- that's the idea to stand before, to give leadership to, to have charge over, like a father with his own son. In the Lord, you notice that? Those who have charge over you in the Lord, that is such an important balancing statement. The leadership of the church, the elders of the church, have a very defined sphere of influence, a very defined sphere of authority. It is not their responsibility, it is not their prerogative to tell a congregation where they may live, where they should work, what kind of car they should drive, what type of clothes they ought to wear, how they ought to spend their money, and on and on and on. And many elders take too much to themselves and try to exhibit authority or exert authority in areas where they do not belong. But here the Apostle Paul says that they have charge over you in the Lord. The idea is that they have have spiritual authority over you with regard to your spiritual life. You know, it's possible. It's indeed very conceivable that within the church... There could be someone who has spiritual authority over you that outside the church, you are their boss. Wouldn't that test our maturity? Wouldn't that test our maturity if, if your employee, employee Monday through Friday, right, you tell them what to do and then on Sunday, with regard to spiritual matters, they are in leadership and authority over you, but it could very much happen. The elders of the church diligently labor among you. How? By having spiritual leadership over you they lead you in the lord beyond that they admonish you verse 12 again they give you instruction nutheteo in the greek it means to admonish it means to admonish and, and strictly speaking what it means is to put into somebody's mind to impart understanding Inherent within the word is pointing out someone's faults. How do you like that for a job description? Your job description is to strenuously point out people's faults. To make them aware of their shortcomings, their defects, their sin. To remind them of the danger they face if they do not repent of such attitudes and behaviors. Also within this idea of admonishing or nutheteo is the uh, is the idea to uh, affix blame it is to make someone feel guilty make them feel guilty just so that they would remain in a, in a state of guilt no but to bring them to a place of repentance where they would change the way they they view the world to align their thinking with god's thinking and then amend their behavior to follow that new and godly way of thinking Those who diligently labor among you, leading you and reminding you of all of your shortcomings. That's the job description. It's the idea of correction. Correction. But again, it is within the context of a relationship. It is not to to, uh, provoke someone to bitterness. It is the idea of, of, of a relational situation, like the advice of a big brother or a or a father with his children. How often the Apostle Paul uses that kind of a metaphor, talking about himself as a father with the children. Dads, that's one of your responsibilities, is to admonish your children. It is to point out their faults. It is to make them feel guilty for their shortcomings. It is to show them how they do not measure up to God's standard. Now, there's a couple of ways you can do that, right? You can be harsh and, and overbearing or you can come alongside them to encourage them to the truth, but you still must show them the error of their ways. I think that's one of the reasons, beloved, why the examination of a man's family is so significant in his qualifications for leadership. Because if he cannot do it within the home, within those who are naturally inclined towards his leadership, how in the world is he going to do it in a congregation of people in which he does not have that kind of blood relationship? You know, it's fun to dispense Bible knowledge. It's kind of fun to be the Bible answer man, you know. 
just to kind of stand up and, and, uh, and give all kinds of Bible facts, tell stories, whatever. What is agonizing is to admonish using the Scriptures. It is an agonizing thing to have to take the Word of God and hold it up like a laser and shine it right onto somebody and show them where they don't measure up. Listen to the words of a theologian of yesteryear in the name of James Denny. He lived in the 19th century and early into the 20th. He said, quote, We are certain to bring a good deal of the world into the church without knowing it. We are certain to have instincts, habits, dispositions, associates perhaps, and likings which are hostile to the Christian type of character. And it is this which makes admonition indispensable. What is he saying? He's saying that when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, God does not automatically zap you in such a way that all of the old stuff goes away, right? You bring your junk with you. We all do. We all do. We all come to Christ just the way we are. Isn't that true? We do not clean up our life in order to come to faith in Jesus Christ. We come just like we are. There's a song, right? Just as I am. With all of my stuff, all of my baggage, all of my shortcomings, all of the filth and garbage of my life, I bring it to the cross of Jesus Christ and there it is forgiven by His blood. And then begins the process of putting off the old man, putting on the new, right? Laying aside that old stuff and beginning to emulate Jesus Christ in your life. Well, beloved, that process requires someone to help you. Someone to open the Word of God for you and to hold it up to you so you can, by the Spirit of God, examine your own heart and see where you must change. We all need it. We all require, we all must be admonished. Yet it's not fun. It's not a fun thing to do. Anybody who enjoys admonishing people is somehow a little twisted, I think, inside. It's just not fun to go around to people and to, and to show them the error of their ways. It's far more fun to, to come alongside them and slap them on the back and tell them how good they're doing. And many leaders fail to admonish as they should. Many leaders fail because they fear man. They're more afraid of man than they are of God. They are less concerned with the holiness of the church than they are with the happiness of the church. And so, perhaps fearing that if they bring biblical reproof and admonishment and correction, the person will get mad and leave, they withhold it. Or they will not confront someone because they're afraid that they will stop financially supporting the church. And so the fear of man, not the fear of God, becomes the driving factor. Sin goes unchallenged. Many congregations have no idea what the contents of Matthew 18 is all about and, and, and have never used it. They are afraid to bring biblical correction. They are afraid to look someone in the face and to say to them, you must repent of this behavior. You must cease and desist. You must fall on your face before God and you must ask forgiveness. And if you fail to do so, we will be forced to continue to put the pressure on you according to the Scriptures to bring you to the point of repentance. Far too many churches, the doctrine of church discipline is some relic from the past. It's not loving, they will say. It's not gentle. It's not kind. It's, it's not winsome. They're more interested in the happiness of the church than the holiness of the church. The failure to admonish the people of God reveals oneself not to be a true shepherd, but to be a hireling. But to be a hireling. Listen to Jesus in John 10. He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hireling and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, beholds the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hireling and he is not concerned about the sheep. 
It is a work of a hireling to refuse to admonish the people of God. Church leadership requires rigorous effort. Rigorous effort. Secondly, second lesson from this text is that God appeals for right relationships. Right relationships within the church. There are three characteristics that he gives us here of a right relationship. The first is appreciation. Notice verse 12, we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you. This is not a note of apostolic command. He doesn't command that you appreciate. He requests that we appreciate. He requests that we appreciate those who labor among us. That is our brethren within the church. That we respect them, that we recognize them, that we know them. That's all sort of built into this statement here. It is a relational admonition. It has the idea verbally of of reflecting upon your leadership and knowing them based upon that mature reflection. It is not just knowing something about them by observation or experience. It is a a verb of, of reflection, of meditation, of thinking seriously about who they are and what it is they are called to do. And on the basis of that mature reflection, we are to appreciate them, the Apostle Paul says. Beyond that, we are to esteem them. Verse 13, do you see that? And that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Again, this is another word of relationship. We are to value the leaders among us because they are leaders among us. We have a present tense verb here. It's it's speaking of an ongoing attitude of esteem. A congregation, a healthy congregation, has esteem for its leadership. Very highly, he says. You see that? You esteem them very highly in love. Super abundantly, out of all bounds, beyond measure, he's saying. In love. In love. You know, God cares about how we treat people in authority. Did you know that? How we treat those in authority is important to God. Because how we respond to those in authority demonstrates the attitude of our heart and how we respond to God. God is the one who establishes authorities. And thus, he says, Romans 13, that we are to honor our civil authorities. We are to honor our civil authorities, not because we agree with all the decisions they make, not because we like their politics, but because God has placed them in a position of authority over us. And by honoring them, we are indeed honoring God. If that is true outside of the church, for the civil leadership of this country, then it is true within the church, with those that are in spiritual leadership over us, we must esteem them. We must honor them. God wants us to honor our leadership because by doing that... We honor Him. Now, let me be quick to acknowledge that leadership has its problems. Amen? Those that are in leadership over us are men with feet of clay. They are sons of Adam. They have not arrived yet. They have all of their natural strengths and weaknesses. All of their personality quirks. Right? The problem becomes is when we major on their problems instead of focusing on on, uh, esteeming them because God has placed them in a position over us, that's when the problems begin. Think with me this way. Remember old Moses? You remember him? The greatest leader of Israel, right? The one who delivered the nation from bondage to Egypt and led them out. Oh, Moses, we'll follow you anywhere. You know, just take us. It wasn't too long before they're grumbling, right, and griping at Moses' leadership. Pretty soon they're ready to stone the guy. If you focus on the shortcomings, it will quickly lead you towards that kind of grumbling, griping attitude where to focus upon that which God has done and is doing through His leadership. I mean, it's inevitable, beloved, that 
that we're going to have differences of opinion with those who are in leadership. We're going to see things differently. We're going to think that they move too slow or too fast, that they're too harsh or too lax, right? They're, they're too stuck in a rut and unwilling to change or, or they're too quick to change anything. It's inevitable that our perspective will be different from theirs. We all have our unique perspective on how things ought to be. But we are called to be in submission to our leadership. We are called to esteem our leadership, to appreciate our leadership, to recognize the God-given authority of our leadership. And in that context, we have church peace. One commentator says, quote, The exercise of authority is always apt to provoke resentment. The exercise of authority is always apt to present Resent or provoke resentment. To provoke resentment. Why? It is because of our rebellious hearts. That's why. We do not like people to be in authority. I will not have this one be in authority over me. Even the perfect Son of God, the nations reject, right? Why do the nations rage? They will not have God to be in authority over them. But we are to esteem them, verse 13 again, very highly in love. See the relationship that's going on here? It's a love relationship. It is a love relationship within a congregation. It is leaders that love their congregation and congregation that loves their leaders. And where there is that kind of love flowing, then mistakes are easily overlooked. Forgiveness is quickly extended. People are less critical of of difficult decisions or decisions in which they disagree. There is an attitude of love. Listen to Alexander Strzok as he talks about this. He says, Most controversies between leaders and congregations are not due to theological differences, but due to unsanctified human ambitions, jealousy, and personality clashes. The real root of many church problems lies in a lamentable immaturity in the area of biblical love. Amen. Churches split. Churches fracture. Churches are squabbling and scrapping with one another. We, we hear about a church in Austria, right? There is problems going on. You know what the problem with the church in Austria is right now, where the rights are? There is a lamentable, lamentable immaturity in the area of biblical love within that fellowship. There is an unwillingness to love one another. And thus the church there is fractured, divisive, hurtful, and unable to fulfill its mission to bring the gospel to a, to a dying and lost world. The Apostle Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right? That love suffers long. Love suffers wrong. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, love covers a multitude of sins. When we are in love with one another, we are willing to overlook each other's foibles. They are to esteem their leadership very highly in love. Notice again, verse 13, because of their work. That is because they are leaders, because they are giving themselves strenuously to the work of leadership. Not because they are inherently deserving of our love, but it is because they have been placed in a position of spiritual authority and they are giving themselves wholeheartedly to that task. Therefore, we are to love them. Third characteristic is peace. The third characteristic of a right relationship with leaders is peace. Verse 13 in the end, live in peace with one another. Do you see that? Live in peace with one another. The grammatical construction here, it could be translated, uh, maintain the peace that you have within this congregation. Paul is not telling the Thessalonican church the church of the Thessalonians, that they need to begin to start to live in peace. They are living in peace. In fact, he commends them earlier and he says, your message has gone out all over Greece. Everybody's talking about this church in Thessalonica, this little congregation. All over the nation of Greece is being talked about. Why? One of the reasons is because they are living out the gospel. He's saying, continue, maintain the peace that you have within the congregation live continually live in peace with one another it is a joint 
responsibility to live in peace. It is a responsibility of both leadership and those who are led. So many churches are marked by fighting, squabbling, right? It's terrible. It's awful to, to be involved in that situation and for it to continue. It is, an, it is a contradiction of a new life in Jesus Christ, a church that cannot get along with itself. Yet a church that is at peace is like an oasis in the middle of a barren desert. Many of you have experience with church splits, church squabbles, church fights, right? You know how agonizing it is, how gut-wrenching it can become. How friends can become divided over foolish issues. And the testimony for Jesus Christ is crippled in the community by that. I can remember a number of years ago when we first moved here to Upland, we visited a church first Sunday here in Upland. You walked into the worship center and you could have cut it with a knife. There was so much tension because they were at each other's throats. Well, you know what we did? We did what any visitor would do. We turned around and we walked out the door because we thought there is no way that we're going to try to stay around and figure out who's right and who's wrong. We're out of here. There's no way a church can grow spiritually. There's no way a church can grow numerically if it is not at peace with itself. When there's a church that is fighting with one another, squabbling with one another, unable to live at peace with one another, it is not an advertisement for the gospel of Christ at all. I praise God that we live at peace in this congregation. Amen? We have gone years by the grace of God in peace. We are not characterized by scrapping and squabbling. We certainly have our differences of opinion. And that's okay. That's healthy. But we are not a congregation that is by the grace of God. And we need to always say that it is by the grace of God. that We are not involved in that kind of stuff. And I praise God for it. I can't think of a better place that I would rather be. There is no other congregation anywhere on God's earth. And I would rather be than right here among you. This is the place to be. God appeals for right relationships. Third, God promises real rewards. God promises real rewards. Turn over with me to 1 Timothy 3. I'm just going to, rounding this out, clean up a verse that we have overlooked. 1 Timothy 3, as we work through that. God promises real rewards. You know, He promises rewards both temporally and eternally for those in leadership. Kind of circling back again on us. It's a strenuous effort. It's a rigorous effort to be involved in leadership. But there are rewards. It is not just all difficulty. There are real rewards. Some temporal and some eternal. Look here, verse 13, for the temporal rewards as outlined by Paul here. Talking about deacons. And he says, For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. They obtain for themselves a high standing. A good standing, an honorable status would be another way to translate this. Bathmos is the, is the Greek word behind this, and it, and it is used, and it can refer to a staircase. And so figuratively, it, it was used in some places to speak of rank or grade. And so that idea is carried for some people into this and with the idea that uh, those who serve well as deacons get promoted to a high standing. But I don't think that that's what he's talking about at all here. I don't think you're promoted from being a deacon to an elder or to some other, you know, to, to some other position in the church. You know, this is not a career path. The ministry of the deacon is something that one is called to. So I don't think that that's what he's talking about. He says when they achieve for themselves a high standing. I think a better way to understand this is that they achieve for themselves a, an honorable status or a good standing within the eyes of the Christian community. I think that's what Paul's communicating here. He's telling the deacons that he says, listen, gentlemen, this is difficult work. 
This is strenuous work. This is work that is going to wrench your heart out. But if you will give yourself faithfully to this work, you will achieve a very good standing within the congregation. You will be looked on with honor. You will be respected among the congregation. You will have an honorable status in the eyes of the church. Beyond that, you will have great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now again, this subject to a couple of possible interpretations here. Some think it is talking about boldness. The great confidence is, is speaking about boldness or openness or fearlessness. The idea being that if you serve well as a deacon, you'll become a bold evangelist. Well, maybe that's true. Maybe that's true. But I'm, I'm not persuaded that that's exactly what he's talking about here. Instead, what I think he's talking about here when he says that a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus is that he's talking about your personal faith in Christ Jesus. There are some grammatical reasons why I would hold to that, and I don't want to go into them all now, but let's just say there is, a, there is no definite article here where it says great confidence in the faith. It's actually great confidence in faith that is in Christ Jesus. I think what the Apostle Paul is saying here, gentlemen, is when you serve well as a deacon, not only will you achieve a sense of honor among the congregation, but you will grow in your own assurance of your salvation. You will grow in the assurance of your salvation. Nothing helps persuade you of your new life in Christ like getting down in the trenches and serving other people. If there's anything that's antithetical to a new life in Christ, it's serving others, right? Because the unredeemed by nature is self-serving, not other-oriented. Those ministers of mercy will receive great honor within the congregation and great assurance of their own salvation in Christ Jesus. Temporal rewards. Beyond that, there are eternal rewards. For that, you have to go to 1 Peter chapter 5, so turn over to the right to 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5 and verse 4. This passage is talking about elders. But he's talking about eternal rewards. Verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You give yourself to the ministry. You have a future prospect of a crown of glory. When Jesus returns, right? When the chief shepherd appears. Over in chapter 1, verse 20, the same verb is used and it's speaking there of his first coming. What he's talking about here in verse 4 is his second coming. When Christ returns to this earth to establish his kingdom, the Apostle Paul says that he will hand out rewards. He will hand out rewards. And the reward He will hand out to those who have given themselves to the ministry of the elder here is this unfading crown of glory. The crown of glory, it's, it's, uh, grammatically, it's a genitive of apposition. It means one noun explains another noun or is equivalent of that other noun. So a crown of glory, a crown that is glory. That would be a good way to translate it. You will receive a crown that is glory. You will receive the glory that Jesus will give to you for your service. And then, of course, you will turn around and reflect it all right back to him. Crown of glory. Beloved, spiritual leadership is demanding. But it is a high and holy calling. Those who do it well receive real rewards both here in this life and in the life to come. Those who do it well will be well-loved within the congregation. And a congregation that loves its leadership and responds favorably to its leadership will enjoy peace, prosperity within the congregation. I praise God for the number of men that He has raised up within this congregation and put it in their heart to give spiritual leadership. To make the sacrifices, to carry the load, to make the personal sacrifices required, to make the family sacrifices required. God will bless you, gentlemen. Do not grow weary. 
Continue to work, to strive, to give yourself to this high and holy task. There are rewards coming. And we can support our leaders. We can love our leaders. We can esteem our leaders. And beloved, we can pray for our leaders. Let me just leave you with that one point of application. Can I do that? You want to love your leadership? You want to esteem your leadership? You want to appreciate those who diligently labor among you? You know how you can do that? You can pray for them. You can pray for them. Commit yourself to once a week praying for the elders and deacons by name. By name. Get to know them and their families. Hold them up before the throne of grace. And there is no telling what God will do in and through this place. Let's pray. Lord God, I rejoice in this fellowship and in what you're doing in it. I rejoice, Father, in the love that you have already poured out upon us and among us. I rejoice, Father, for those notes that I receive in the mail with such regularity, some signed and some not, that seek to encourage me and tell me they're praying for me. And I know my brothers also value those same tokens of love and esteem. Lord God, You know as well our love for the people here. You know, our Father, that they are upon our heart. That it is our desire to, to shepherd them, to lead them, to help them to grow in Christ Jesus. Lord God, You know so very well our shortcomings too. You know how we fail. You know how in the sinfulness of our own heart that we can become self-absorbed. That we cannot care as we should. That we cannot love as we ought. Forgive us, Lord God, for our failures. Continue to work in and among us as leaders. Humble our hearts to recognize not just with our mouth, but with our whole being that this is not our kingdom, not our church, but it is yours, redeemed with the blood of your own Son. We pray, our Father, that you would be pleased to use this congregation to reach the community with the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to be about that business, we pray. In His name, Amen.